Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not mistaken because you don't know the Scriptures? you got to understand what an insult this would be to the Sadducees. These are the people in line as high priests. That this 30-something-year-old rabbi would say to them, You're mistaken in that you don't know the Scriptures? The Pharisees tried several times to trick Jesus by asking him questions that they themselves didn't understand. Our eternal life after we leave this earth is a topic they didn't really get and one that we don't truly understand too clearly today. But Jesus is the Word made flesh, the author of eternity. And while we may not have all the answers about what heaven will be like for us, all we have to know is that Jesus, the answer, and the one who holds all answers will be there. Here comes the continuation of our teaching out of Mark 12, 18 through 27 with Robert Furrow. In our passage today, we want to look at what happens when we as Christians die. It's a little bit of a mystery when we step out of this life and into the next one. And you think about it when you lose someone. You think, where did they go? You think about it as you approach the time in your life when you get the idea that this time is done, my appointment for death is approaching. I lost my late wife, Lisa, in 2012, December of 2012. Shortly before she died, Skip Heitzig had come, a pastor of Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque, the church that I was in before I came here, the church that sent us out. And Skip was here teaching for me. And um, Lisa said to me, can you get Skip to come by after church? I said, sure. What do you want to talk to him about? She says, well, I want to talk to him about what's going to happen after I die. And I was like, I'm a, you want to talk to another, you don't trust me? Is that what's going on here? You want to talk to Skip instead of talking to me? And so Skip came down and we talked about the intermittent state. We talked about the different theories, but the comfort was that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that you are going into his presence. A little bit later on, actually, after Lisa had died, three months later, her father died. And he had given his life to Christ out of the desire to see his daughter. All those years, he had rebelled against it. But when he was diagnosed with lymphoma and told he only had a little while to live while Lisa's sister was there with him, he said, I want to see Lisa again. And he prayed with her and he gave his life to Christ. And so I was doing his funeral and he didn't want anybody there. So it was just me, my brother-in-law, and Lisa's older sister. And I was reading out of Psalms 34, I think it is, where it says, and they looked upon him and their faces were radiant. And I pictured in my mind, both of them, there in heaven, one who had entered in a long time ago and one who had just entered in and they both were looking upon him and their faces were radiant. We see here in Mark chapter 12 that it says in verse 18, then some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him. We learn right away that they have a plan. They say there is no resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection. See, when you look at the Old Testament, the Testament talks about Sheol, the grave. It is translated Hades often. But the idea of hell being underground with an underground world ruled over by, by Satan, it's not a biblical concept at all. It's not a New Testament concept. It's not an Old Testament concept. In fact, it's a Greek mythology concept. In Greek mythology, you have the god, little g, Hades, 
that rules over the underworld. And we have kind of taken that and plugged it into the Bible. In the Old Testament, the grave, Sheol or Hades, as it sometimes is translated, was talked about a place of silence, a place of no remembrance and a place of darkness. That's how the Old Testament defined Sheol. It also said it was a place where they were resting with their fathers. They would go to Sheol where they would rest with their fathers. So we find that description, resting with their fathers, darkness, silence, and a place where you don't remember. And so by studying the Old Testament, you don't really come to a good theory of the afterlife. It's not until Jesus comes on the scene and he starts talking to us about punishment and he starts talking to us about destruction and we start to get the idea of what the afterlife is like for someone who does not believe. The Sadducees, the very word comes from of Zadok. That's what the word means. It's from of Zadok. Zadok was the high priest that had descended from Aaron during the reign of David. So they traced their roots all the way back to Zadok. They were also on the line of Aaron. And it was the Sadducees that became high priests. As a Pharisee, you could become a priest, but you had to be a Sadducee who had their line in Aaron to become a high priest. They had also become incredibly wealthy off of the backs of the poor. They ran the bazaars. It was the bazaars of Annas, one of the high priests that Jesus turned over the tables in. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees were at odds with each other. The Pharisees believed in an afterlife. And it's interesting to me that we see at least three Pharisees getting saved in the Bible. We see Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee and got saved. We see Nicodemus and we see Joseph of Arimathea. The latter two were in the Sanhedrin. Some have suggested that Paul was in the Sanhedrin, but there's no evidence of that at all. But they gave their lives to Christ, but no uh -uh, Sadducees gave their lives to him. And so they come to Jesus and here's what they ask. And they asked him saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, he leaves his wife behind. He leaves no children. His brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. This is the kinsman redeemer idea. If you want to know more about it, you can read the book of Ruth or you could study the kinsman redeemer. That if a man married a woman and then if he died with no children, that the closest kin had a responsibility to marry her. Now, he didn't have to. If he looked at her and said, I don't want to do it, he could take off his shoe at the city gate and he could give it to her. And he would become known as the one who doesn't have a shoe. That would be his nickname from there on out. So when there's no offspring, it's the responsibility of a kinsman, someone close to marry them, have a child, and the land that belonged to the brother that died would be given to his family. It was the way that God kept the land. In God's economy for Israel, he gave everybody land. And land equals wealth to some degree. And so the wealth was kept in the family through this concept of the kinsman redeemer. All right? So then they say now, and here we come to a fictional story. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, the kinsman redeemer. And he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Now, the first thing that I would say is, if I was a third or fourth brother, I would say, where's the gate? I'm going to take off my shoe because all my brothers are dying. The second thing that I might say is, let's check this woman's cooking because all of these guys are dying at such a point that they are not leaving any offspring. And then it says, last of all, he died also. 
Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Huh, Jesus, whose wife will they be? This might have been a question that they had asked the Pharisees and it would stump the Pharisees because the Pharisees didn't have an understanding. But Jesus adds something to it. Jesus answered and said to them, are you not mistaken because you don't know the scriptures? You got to understand what an insult this would be to the Sadducees. These are the people in line as high priests that this 30-something-year-old rabbi would say to them, you're mistaken in that you don't know the Scriptures. Notice the truth about what we believe and what's going to happen is found in the Scriptures, nor do they know the power of God. We want to know the Scriptures and the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, before we get to the negative in that statement, let's talk about the positive. We are like angels. When we talk about that intermittent state that theologians talk about, one of them is that we're somewhat like the angels. I understand that he says that angels don't get married, and so we don't get married. That's how he's saying it. The negative in that is that when we die, we will no longer be married. And that's hard, isn't it? You think, I think for most of you, it's hard. There might be one or two that are like, yes. I shouldn't even joke, all right? I shouldn't even joke, because it's probably rooted in some, some kind of truth. But it's sad because you have companionship, because you have love. But people will ask me, will we know each other in heaven? When we get up there, when we're in our redeemed bodies. And my response to that is, the Bible says that when we are with him, we will know even as we are known. So we're going to gain information. We're going to know more after we die than we do now. I don't know that we'll know everything. I think there's a passage that kind of suggests we'll be learning throughout all of eternity. But one thing I do know, is that you will not be any stupider in heaven than you are now. <laughs> and if I know you now, then I'll know you in heaven. Think about it. If you're friends with somebody, you got a close friend, you're fond of them, you love hanging out with them, you're going to be friends with them in heaven. Your companionship with your husband or your wife, the fondness is still going to be there. The memories of the life that is shared, the children that you had will all be there in heaven. It will be different, yes, but it will be, it will still be good. And I think that's important for us to remember. Now also, when it says that the angels don't marry, that brings up a question to us. Because in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took them as wives and they had offspring who were the Nephilim, the mighty men of renown. Now, that is a loaded passage, I'll tell you. And if you want to get lost down a rabbit trail on YouTube, you can do it. There's long videos on it, all right? But it tells us there are sons of God. And you fast forward a little bit, you find them in the book of Job. Satan is num numbered among them. And you find the sons of God rejoicing when the world is being created in the book of Job. Three times they are mentioned. And then in Numbers, you have the Nephilim mentioned. This is after the flood. It says that there were Nephilim in the earth then and afterwards. So in Numbers, I think it's chapter 13, they go into the promised land and they see the Nephilim and they are like grasshoppers in their sight. So from Numbers, we learn that the Nephilim are giants. And then they're brought up again in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel talks about Nephilim warriors with their shields and their spears and their helmets. Kind of sounds like Goliath or maybe Og, who was the king of the, I think it's the, the Midianites, is who I think it is. But one of those ites that are around there 
He was a giant king, and it talks about his bed and the beam that he carried as well. And then, as you go through a little bit, you come to three really strange passages in the New Testament. You have Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So there are angels that didn't keep their proper abode. To have an abode is where they live. Those angels in, in Genesis 6 lived with women. Okay? 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20. By whom also he went and preached to spirits imprisoned who formerly were disobedient in the days of Noah. I left out a little section there, but that's what it says. He went to preach in prison to those who were disobedient during the days of Noah. Those angels or spirits who were disobedient during the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And so what angels were disobedient during the days of Noah? And then in 2 Peter 2, 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So who are these angels that are reserved for judgment? Now, what exactly am I saying? There's another view that the line of Cain intermarries with the line of Seth and that the Nephilim are kind of, they're, they're just something different. They're brought up in the same passage, but there's something different. And I have objections to that view. I don't believe that view. I have good friends that do believe it. Scott Richards, Pat Lazovich, really good friends of mine. This is actually something we pastors talk about. In fact, we've gotten done talking about, about it actually. But I don't agree with that. I think that these were, were fallen angels, demonic spirits. One of two things happen. The Bible says that they can take the form of a man. We have ministered to angels unknowingly. And either they can take the form of a man and they were actually to marry and have an offspring. And remember, it wasn't just having sex with women. They were marrying them. It was a relationship. They saw these women. They saw that they were fair. They saw that they were beautiful. And they lived with them and they raised children with them and they became the Nephilim. Or they could have possessed someone. It is interesting that when Jesus goes to the Gadareans and there's a man there possessed by a legion of demons, that the legion says to Jesus, what, what have you to do with us? Are you here to send me into chains before my time? That he might have thought I'm doing something here that is going to cause me to be chained up like these other references that are there. Now, that's just a quick hit on Nephilim. If you're interested in more of it, you can do your own research and studying on it. But I think it's, it's interesting. Angels don't marry. And so people will say, well, they can't have sex if they don't marry. Well, I don't know. That's a jump that we don't really know. And we don't even know how they, can, how they really interact with men all the time. There's so much that is a mystery that we don't know. I don't know how you take those passages in the New Testament and Genesis and put them together without seeing that taking place. That's me personally. You can take a different view. As I like to say, you can be wrong if you want to. <laughs> Verse 26. But concerning the dead, he says, their question was, in the future, these guys are going to be married. And he says, you don't know what you're talking about and says that, they're the, that we aren't going to marry. But now he gets to their real question. They don't believe in a resurrection. And there is a resurrection. And so Jesus says, but concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses? Again, this is insult time to the Sadducees. These are the great teachers of Israel. Haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage? How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Do you see what he did there? A tense. Instead of saying, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which would mean that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead. 
He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses lived some 400 years after Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. So he's proving through just instead of saying, I was, I am, he's proving that this little difference in the word of God proves that there is a resurrection. In the handling of Scripture, Jesus shows us how important it is for us to study Scripture, to look at it in the details of the words, to find out what we believe based on Scripture. We should ask ourselves, why do I believe what I believe? What does the Bible say about it? That's what really counts to us. Not what men say, but what the Bible says. Jesus used the Word of God. You are mistaken, and you don't understand the Word of God or God's power. And then he shows them that the resurrection indeed does happen. Now, if it does happen, let's take a few minutes just to consider what happens to us after we die. It's controversial, and that might not surprise you. So at the moment you take your last breath here, you breathe that last breath out, what happens to you? Where there are some who say that you fall asleep. They say this because throughout the New Testament, it says in several places that we will not all sleep and those who have slept will not go before us. So the term for a Christian who died is to fall asleep. And so they say it's not just a picture of us sleeping here and then waking up in heaven, which is what I believe, but they say it's a picture of us sleeping, that for us, it will be like a moment. We'll die and we'll wake up in the resurrection. It's like we're, we're, we have our resurrected bodies all of a sudden. Now, you might be excited. You might be so sleep deprived that the idea of nap that may take decades for you might be just the thing you want. Oh, yeah. Just let me go to sleep and wake up in the resurrection. That would be awesome. There are some Christian Christians who believe it. The Jehovah Witnesses believe in soul sleep. The Seventh-day Adventists believe in soul sleep. And there's never any passage that backs it up. So I don't believe that we go to sleep. In fact, I'll give you a couple of reasons why. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 8, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Now they'll argue against that. They'll say, well, you're sleeping in the presence of God is what they mean. But Paul says, I am well pleased. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then in Philippians 1, 23 through 25, he says, I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart from you and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh, which is more needful for you. Paul says, I'm, I'm have a conflict. This is later on in his life. And he loves the Philippians. They've been a, a, a great church for him. They've supported him. And he says, if I leave, it's better for me. If I don't, it's better for you. So I don't know what to do. And he goes on to say here that I'm going to remain. I shall remain and continue with you in your progress and joy and faith. Now, do you think if Paul was going to take a nap that he would have ever said that? You think that Paul would have, would have said, you know, I really want to go take that nap or be with you and I'm really struggling between the two? No, he said, I'm struggling because I want to go be with the Lord, which is far better for me. Then we are confident that the intermittent state is not soul sleep. Number two, that we are disembodied spirits. And this is, by the way, a possibility. It's not something that we really like, but we have to understand that we don't just have a consciousness. We see ourselves as a body and we have a consciousness, but we are more than a body and a consciousness. We are a spirit in the essence of who we are, especially since our spirit has been quickened to life as Christians. The essence of who we are is a spirit. So when we close our eyes here, we are a spirit that goes into the presence of God. Jesus said on the cross to the Father, 
into your hands I commend my spirit. Stephen said when he was stoned, at the end of it, when he was ready to die, he said, Jesus, into your hands I commend my spirit. There is no doubt that our spirit will go and be in the presence of God. That's easy for us to understand. The question is, will God make a temporary body for us? And this is what some believe, that God will make a temporary body that we will use until we are resurrected. Moses is cited. Remember, Jesus saw Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. We know that Elijah was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, or a whirlwind divided him. He was taken up in heaven in a chariot. Let me get biblically correct. But Moses died and was buried. And so Moses has a body. The suggestion is, is that either God resurrected Moses' body or that he has a temporary body. Also, when Jesus tells the story of the two men that have died, one of them rich and one of them poor, and the poor man named Lazarus was in the comfort of Abraham and the rich man was in torment. And he said to Abraham, send Lazarus over to dip his hand in some water and give it to me. And Abraham said, there's this great gulf between us and, and no one can go across it. And he said, well, then go send Lazarus to tell my brothers not to come here. And he says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't listen to him, they won't believe even if somebody returns from the dead. And how true that statement was. But now that's always called a parable, but it's not a parable. It's not in parable format. It might not be an account. It might be a story and not a genuine account, but it could be a genuine account. And if it is a genuine account, then both the poor man and the rich man were given a temporary body because the resurrection has not happened yet. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4. He says, and this is a little bit of a confusing passage. He says, for we know that if our earthly house, so what does he call our body here? A house. It's not talking about your house, okay? It's talking about your body. We know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. So when this is destroyed, we have another one, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Do we groan in this body? The older we get, the more we groan. Groan when we get up. I groan when I roll over in bed at night anymore. Oh, oh wow. He says in verse three, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. So I think he's making a reference there to being an unembodied spirit or a disembodied spirit. That having been clothed, we would find ourselves without a body. We'd be found naked. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. That mortality may be swallowed up in life. So it seems to me as we read through that passage, and again, it's got to be broken down a lot more than I can do, quicker than I can do, or slower than I can do tonight. But it seems to me that he's talking about a temporary body. We may be just spirits that go into God's presence, but we go into his presence. We may be given a temporary body. Ephesians 4.8 tells us that Jesus ascended up into heaven. He descended and then ascended and took a host of captives with him up into heaven so that all of those that were in Sheol in whatever part of Sheol kept the dead who were righteous, they were brought up into heaven. So they are there with him now and he will bring them back with him when he returns and their bodies will rise first and they will be united together with him. And that will be the end of the intermittent state. When we die, we go into the presence of the Lord and that ought to bring us comfort. And we will be there in his presence, full of joy, 
and full of comfort until we find ourselves resurrected. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.